Welcome to NTD News Today. Here are today's top stories. Lawmakers peer under the hood of a new tax relief act for American families and workers. The House Ways and Means Committee set to debate potential amendments. Former President Trump doubling down on his presidential immunity claim in his legal battles. Find out how Trump compares his situation to actions by former President Obama. If Nikki Haley becomes president, would she pardon former President Trump if he were convicted of anything? Find out what the former ambassador says it depends on. Feeling the pinch, families and businesses weigh in on inflation. Find out what a new lab labor, labor department report says about prices. Thousands of public sector workers have joined picket lines across Northern Ireland. What we know about the biggest strike in the region is recent history. What does it take to capture a portrait of someone in a painting? See the highlights of NTD's sixth international figure painting competition and dive into the deeper meanings behind the works. This is NTD News Today, live from our NTD Global Headquarters. Here are Stephania Cox and Chris Beers. We start with former President Trump's legal battles. Trump suggests that not granting him presidential immunity could set a complicated precedent. Many of the cases against him revolve around things that happened during his presidency. Trump was on Fox News last night comparing his situation to other presidents. Like Obama dropped missiles and they ended up hitting a kindergarten or a school or the apartment house. A lot of people were killed. Well, if that's the case, he's going to end up being indicted when he leaves office. He meant well. The missile went in the wrong direction. A New York Times report from 2019 said the Obama administration killed between 60 and 110 civilians in over 500 airstrikes. Trump also said President Biden could be prosecuted in the future if presidential immunity doesn't apply. He says that's because of Biden's handling of the Afghanistan withdrawal and America's southern border, both of which led to the deaths of civilians. Trump is currently awaiting verdicts in federal cases in Atlanta and D.C. Both are alleging election interference at the end of Trump's presidency. And in related news, Trump will appear on the Washington state primary ballot. A judge on Thursday rejected the latest effort to disqualify the former president. In other states, voters who filed the challenge in Washington cited the 14th Amendment's insurrection clause. The Trump campaign praised the judge's decision to dismiss the case. They allege the Democratic Party is orchestrating these cases. Washington officials have a January 27th deadline to print ballots. The state's primary will be held on March 12th. Nevada's Republican governor endorsed former President Trump yesterday. It's a key swing state that Trump is looking to win easily in a caucus next month. Governor Joe Lombardo told the Nevada Independent he believes the economy and foreign affairs were most stable under Trump. He also said, for all practical purposes, the race is over. Trump endorsed Lombardo during a 2022 run for governor. Nevada has two nominating contests next month. A primary state is requested to run because of a 2021 law and a caucus. The Nevada state GOP is holding two days later. 
The Nevada GOP ultimately assigns the delegates that matter to win the national nomination. They said they will only give the winner of the caucus, the delegates. They said any candidates signing up for the primary would be barred from the caucus. Trump and Governor Ron DeSantis chose the caucus. Nikki Haley opted for the primary. And around 180 congressional Republicans are urging the Supreme Court to keep Trump on Colorado's ballot. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, Senator Ted Cruz, and House Majority Leader Steve Scalise were among those who signed an amicus brief submitted yesterday. They also argue that a state court has no right to circumvent Congress. That's because Congress is able to interject on Section 3 with a two-thirds vote up to the time a candidate holds office. The brief also states no insurrection occurred. It references Trump's statements asking demonstrators to act, quote, peacefully and patriotically. Trump has a 14% lead in New Hampshire. That's according to a recent Boston Globe poll. As we head into the last stretch of the GOP primary race there, we're joined by Roger Simon. He's the director of the Presidential Roller Coaster 24 for his prediction about the results. He also wrote the book, the new book, American Refugees. Roger Simon, thank you for joining us today. What do you expect will happen in this Tuesday's primary? I, I expect the numbers to come in higher for Trump than the, the recent poll. Uh, the reason is there's a carryover from what's, what went on uh, down in Des Moines. And, and, and this, this usually happens that way. You know, there's a, there's a steamroller effect. And I, I'm, if I were to predict, which is a dangerous thing you always do and you always get it in the face, but if I were to predict, I would say... Uh, closer to 20 points than the 14 or so that were in that uh, like, that poll. Okay, and I want to look at this. Five of the seven uh, last GOP candidates to win the New Hampshire primary since 1980 have gone on to win the GOP nomination. Um, why has this state been such a good predictor of the winner in recent decades? Uh, I don't really know because these things are very erratic. I mean, you can you can pretend that you know. But you really don't. Uh, you know, New Hampshire is a more centrist state than, say, South Carolina coming up in a few days. On the other hand, uh, on the other hand, strange things happen. Uh, they, for example, on the Democratic side, uh, Joe Biden, I think in the last primary, came in something like fifth. I mean, he barely registered with 2% and then ended up the president. All right, and if Trump wins in New Hampshire, what will it mean to the other candidates' campaigns, given how uh, moderate or liberal the, the, the voter base in New Hampshire is compared to Iowa? Well, it, the voter base is a little bit more moderate in New Hampshire, but, you know, what it means is it's over. And I think that, you know, it's been over since it started on one level. So, it, so it, 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 the it becomes very peculiar that the other candidates are staying in the race. And Vivek Ramaswamy is looking very smart now for having dropped out. In fact, he may have uh, guaranteed himself a uh, nice position in a future uh, Trump administration by so doing. Yeah, and you mentioned Vivek. Um, his voters are expected to go to former President Trump. What could that add um, to add up to in a state like New Hampshire, um, which has twice as many moderate uh, liberal voters than, than in Iowa, like I was mentioning? 
it will not add up to too much. It'll add up to a few points. I mean, he Vivek was not doing super well in New Hampshire. I actually traveled with him in New Hampshire. And, and the general reception to him when he was talking was very positive. But in, in truth, the people that, that would like him already liked Trump and were locked into Trump. So he'll, he'll, he'll add a few marginal points, but it won't be gigantic. And what do you think the future of this race looks like after the New Hampshire primary and beyond? Uh, it looks like it's over, and I, Trump is already, you know, acting like it's over, and I think he should because he's, because he's so far ahead. And by Super Tuesday, I think that you'll find the others will have dropped out if the, unless something very strange happens. Got it. You know, that's that seems to be the consensus on both sides of the aisle from what we're hearing. But why do you think these these candidates are still running? I mean, you know, for them, it's not over yet. You know, that's an interesting question. I think there's an article in Politico this morning that's worth really looking at because in the, in the, in the famous words of H.L. Uh, Mencken, when somebody says it's not about the money, it's about the money. And there's a, there's a fair amount of money in these campaigns by, by people who are paying for something. They're, they're, largely, they're paying to stop Trump. And, it's, uh, and I think that the impetus is what's keeping us going. And naturally, human ego, everybody thinks somehow the world will turn in their direction even when it's not. All right, Roger Simon, author of American Refugees and director of the Presidential Roller Coaster 2024. Thank you so much. Thank you, Chris. And former President Trump's legal cases, they're becoming a topic of discussion for other presidential candidates as well. During a CNN town hall in New Hampshire, the moderator asked Nikki Haley if she would, as president, preemptively pardon Trump. No, I think everything needs to play out. I think it's important that that happens. And I honestly think President Trump would want that to happen. If he wants to defend himself and prove that he has been treated, you know, the wrong way or whether it's political, I think he would want to fight for that. You know, you only want to talk about a pardon after someone has been convicted. So I would assume that we'd let that play out. And I would think he would want that to play out. The moderator noted President Ford preemptively pardoned his predecessor, Richard Nixon. Nixon was not charged with a crime, but resigned from office due to the Watergate scandal. Haley, meanwhile, reiterated her pledge to pardon Trump should he be convicted. She said a pardon is only for people who are already found guilty. Haley also said that having an 80-year-old president sitting in jail is going to further divide the country. She said pardoning him would be healing for the country. Haley added, quote, I am determined to make sure all of this division, all of this chaos goes away. And with the New Hampshire primary just around the corner, the tech used for voting is getting a closer look. Many voters will cast ballots on scanners at least 15 years old. Security risk is not the issue, however. Election experts say the age of the AccuVote ballot tabulators is, and they use, are used across half of the state's towns and cities. With a dwindling supply of replacement parts, breaks, breakdowns would create headaches for election officials during Tuesday's first in the nation primary. That could force them to count ballots by hand and lead to delays in reporting results, which could promote fears about election integrity, apparently. 
And the first in the nation primary in New Hampshire is coming up next week. Make sure you don't miss our special coverage. Join NTD's Steve Lance and Tiffany Meyer for another exciting election night on nation, The Nation Decides 2024. Exclusive on the ground access and special guests. Watch the action live on Tuesday, January 23rd at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. Is tax relief on the way for Americans? Congress today is discussing a bipartisan bill called the Tax Relief for American Families and Workers Act of 2024. Democrats and Republicans have been working on this bill for months. If passed, it would reinstate a more modest version of the child tax credit from the pandemic-era American Rescue Plan Act of 2021. We'll tune in to the House Ways and Means Committee meeting about the act right now. The committee will come to order. Good morning. Um, our first and only order of business today is H.R. 7024, the Tax Relief for American Families and Workers Act of 2024. The bill before us today is a result of a bipartisan conversation this committee started more than 10 years ago about how to reform the tax code in a way that supports workers, families, and small businesses. That conversation, which continued over 40 bipartisan hearings, led to the 2017 tax law, which was shaped by ideas championed by several members on both sides of this committee. After the 2017 tax law was signed into law, we saw economic growth surge a full point higher than the previous 10-year average. Unemployment and poverty dropped to their lowest, lowest rates in 50 years, and we saw the fastest two-year growth in wages in two decades. Last year, at our committee-filled hearings in places like Petersburg, West Virginia, Yukon, Oklahoma, Peachtree City, Georgia, we heard directly from the American people about how these policies helped their families, supported workers, and grew jobs and small businesses. But with some of these provisions phasing out or expiring, we have more work to do. Right now, we at the Ways and Means Committee have an opportunity, as my friend Mr. Neal often says, to do big things. Right now, this bill contains important provisions that individually have bipartisan support. Democrats have voted to extend R&D expensing. Republicans, they created the child tax credit and support minimum work requirements to promote a connection to the workforce and greater prosperity. When we travel back to our districts next week, we can show our constituents who are struggling with inflation and high interest rates that when Congress works together, we can still achieve big things. Bipartisan tax relief that grows wages, supports better jobs, gives families more breathing room, and keeps America competitive on the world stage. The Tax Relief for American Families and Workers Act builds on many of the key provisions in the 2017 tax law that led to a <laughs> roaring economy and raised workers' pay. After that law was enacted, research and development investments skyrocketed by 18% when it had been growing at a meager 1% for the prior five years. Restoring this provision will not only preserve over $70 billion in R&D investment, but also help our manufacturing sector, which does the most R&D, 
allowing us to keep pace with China and other industrial nations. We also saw how small businesses benefited from interest deductibility. Companies increased their investment by 17% and reduced their levels of debt. Right now, small and mid-sized businesses are getting hammered by interest rates that are the highest in 23 years. Restoring this provision will create more than 850,000 jobs and 58 billion in additional take-home pay for workers. This bill also expands 100% expensing, which allows employers to fully deduct the cost of equipment and machines that increase productivity and worker wages. When this policy was originally implemented, investment in America, American businesses grew 20%. Under this bill, investment will grow by an additional 400 billion. Restoring this policy will increase wages, create more than 70,000 jobs, and incentivize more companies to bring their manufacturing back to the United States. In addition to building on these proven policies, we are also taking steps to rebuild American communities and grow small businesses. This bill includes tax relief for communities across the country that have been upended by man-made and natural disasters. We are also cutting red tape for small businesses with a less burdensome reporting threshold for subcontractors' work the first update to the threshold in more than 70 years. Just as important, this bill will ensure that parents can finally catch a break by building on the current child tax credit that supports families and rewards work. And finally, we are going after waste and fraud that has come to define so many pandemic era programs. This bill will save over 70 billion in taxpayer dollars by closing out the COVID era employee retention tax credit program, which has become overrun with fraud and ballooned in cost six times larger than CBO's original estimate. The bill before us today represents bipartisan policies that are proven and effective. Common sense fixes to the tax code that will rebuild our communities, support better jobs and wages, and grow our economy. Many members on both sides of this committee are co-sponsors of the different policies in this legislation. I look forward to today's conversation and let's remind the American people when this committee can, that this committee can accomplish when we work together. Recognize the ranking member, Mr. Neal. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, Democrats are here today because of a simple truth. When we invest in workers and families, we invest in our economy. Democrats' 2021 expansion of the child tax credit put money back in the pockets of working families across the country, keeping the lights on and, indeed, children fed. The results were a resounding historic reduction in child poverty and better lives for millions. These children are tomorrow's workers, and we need to acknowledge that. When Republicans blocked the extension of this vital tax relief for middle-class families, we never lost sight of its importance on this side. We worked tirelessly to see the child tax credit revitalized and renewed while our colleagues on the other side have single-mindedly pursued tax breaks for the well-connected, we saw in their own tax scam last summer. Indeed, today's markup is only possible due to Democrats' insistence on putting workers and families first. While this bill is a start towards the future of America's children that they deserve, more could have been done. Our colleagues, once again, are letting politics get in the way of sound policy for America's working families by refusing to expand the credit to the extent that we desired on this side. This 
opportunity would come to the assistance of America's poorest children. If Democrats had their way, we'd have gone further. We know that when you grow the middle class, you grow the economy. A note of gratitude to Bill Clinton and his vision for having offered this up many decades ago, and we have witnessed much of the success because of it. Our committee has important work to do, and the American people depend upon us for that purpose. When we held the majority, we passed historic legislation that kick-started a record economic growth, which has included 15 million new jobs during the last three years, creating jobs for American workers across the country. Poor children need that same opportunity. Instead of working together, looking for an opportunity to sign significant legislation into law, once again, we spent our time on the impeachment inquiry for potential government shutdowns and unworkable legislation. Let's put the stunting aside and get on to governing as we will attempt this morning. I want to acknowledge the great work of our colleagues who not only fought for the child tax credit but also critical disaster relief, low-income housing tax credits, tax relief to strengthen our relationship with Taiwan, among other priorities. But a very stubborn reminder, being born to poverty should not be a lifetime of condemnation to poverty. Cutting childhood poverty, putting families on a pathway to prosperity, and setting parents up to better participate in our workforce are all within our reach. It's my hope this morning that we can take a meaningful step toward delivering on that very purpose for those children. I yield back, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Mr. Neal. The committee will now proceed to consideration of H.R. 7024, the Tax Relief for American Families and Workers Act of 2024. Without objection, the measure will be considered as read and open for amendment at any point. At this time, I offer an amendment in the nature of a substitute, which was distributed in advance, along with a green sheet explaining it. Without objection, the amendment in the nature of a substitute shall be considered as read, open for amendment at any point, and considered base text for purpose of amendment. I will now turn to Tom Bartold, Chief of Staff for the Joint Committee on Taxation, to provide the technical description of the amendment in the nature of a substitute with an emphasis on the changes made since introduction. I ask that members hold their questions until after his presentation. Coming up, a new Labor Department report shines a light on inflation. We hear from a cafe owner and mom about how high prices hit their wallets. That and more when we return with NTD News. And the stock market typically follows a certain pattern during election years. We'll explore this and more after the break. Welcome back. We're watching a House Ways and Means Committee about meeting about the Tax Relief for American Families and Workers Act of 2024. Democrats and Republicans have been working on this bill for months. If passed, it would reinstate a more modest version of the child tax credit from the pandemic-era American Rescue Plan Act of 2021. Let's tune in. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, the committee members have before them three joint committee documents, uh, JCX, which describes the underlying, JCX-2, which describes the underlying legislation, JCX-4, on the green sheet, which describes the chairman's amendment, the nature of a substitute, and JCX 5, also on a green sheet, which provides the Joint Committee staff revenue estimates of the uh, legislation before you. The legislation before you includes within it several measures that the committee has previously reported out. There are business tax provisions, which uh, 
suspend the research amortization under Section uh, 174, uh, suspend the limitation, the change in the limitation on interest deductions under Code Section 163J, extend 100 percent bonus depreciation. Uh, and also make permanent a new higher level of expensing under Code Section 179. The committee has previously reported uh, these items in substantially the same form. Likewise, the committee has previously reported out the legislation that provides uh, reciprocal rules to mitigate possible double taxation for investments uh, in Taiwan, and uh, also uh, disaster uh, relief legislation and information related to relaxing the $600 uh, threshold on informa certain information returns. The provisions that are new in the underlying legislation and are addressed in the Chairman's Amendment, the nature of a substitute, uh, uh, relate to the child tax credit. Uh, as you know, generally under present law, the child tax credit is partially refundable to the extent of earned income. The uh, underlying legislation temporarily for tax years 2023, 2024, and 25 uh, increases the limitation on refundability, increases the uh, tax credit, uh, and it allows for a look back to the preceding year in measuring earned income for, uh, for a taxpayer to compute the amount of tax credit for which they uh, may be eligible. The Chairman's amendment in the nature of a substitute directs the Treasury to recompute the uh, credit uh, if it results in an overpayment to and then to be refunded to the taxpayer. So essentially directs the Treasury to try and help the taxpayer get the best result, uh, get the best result possible. As uh, the Chairman noted in his opening remarks, the, uh, legisl uh, the legislation uh, also uh, would suspend uh, claims for credit for refund under the employee retention tax credit as of January uh, 31st. It extends the statute of limitations uh, for the IRS to pursue potentially uh, invalid, uh, invalid claims. It also defines an employee retention tax credit promoter and establishes certain, uh, certain penalties. The Chairman's amendment, the nature of a substitute, changes a contingent uh, uh, fee based on the employee retention tax credit, and that such char uh, to be a promoter, one has to not only charge a contingent fee related to that, but that such charges have to exceed a gross receipts uh, test. The Chairman's Amendment, the nature of a substitute, also provides uh, no inference language, which essentially clarifies uh, the effective date on which uh, promoter knowledge and due diligence standards are required. The other new aspect of the legislation before you, as noted in the opening statements, relates to the low-income housing tax credit. There, uh, this legislation provides a temporary increase in state allocations for years 2023, 2024, and 2025, and relaxes the uh, limitation that applies to certain bond finance properties to qualify for the 4 percent credit outside of the state, uh, uh, outside of the state uh, credit cap. Um, that provides a brief summary of this legislation. I'd be happy to answer any questions that the members might have. Are there any technical questions about the amendment in the nature of a substitute? Well, thank you. I think correctly declared that it locks in 
in his words, $600 billion in business tax breaks. Does that $600 billion figure represent a reasonable approximation of the 10-year cost of making these three provisions permanent? Uh, well, Mr. Mr. Doggett, the uh, uh, only provision that's made permanent is uh, the section one expansion oh, of section oh, yes. 179. I, I understand that. I'm asking you, I, I assume the $600 billion figure wasn't pulled out of the air, and it, it looked to me like it was a pretty reasonable estimate if you made all of these provisions permanent, these three, uh, of what they would cost over 10 years. Does that seem reasonable to you, the chairman's statement? Uh, Mr. Doggett, I'd, ha I'd have to go back and uh, check with my colleagues. I don't have before me uh, estimates that uh, of making uh, 163J bonus and uh, Section 174 uh, expensing you, you do, permanent. You but I can, I can provide that yeah. to you, sir. You and joining us now is NTD business host Don Ma to discuss stock market performance in, elec in election years. Looking at historical records, the typical stock market pattern in presidential election years is one of first half weakness and second half strength. Don, tell us a bit more about this pattern. All right, so if you're looking at the Dow Jones Industrial Average since 1896, what you're going to see is that you'll find a, a slower start to the beginning of the year compared to non-election year averages. And then you get some sideways trading for a few months. And then it takes a dip in May to June. Um, and then after that, what you get is that you get a jump where the index goes right up. Um, so the, the Dow's second half return in presidential election years averages 8.6% versus a 3% in all other years. So for, for the pattern for a typical non-election year, you don't get a sudden increase uh, in, the, in performance in the second half of the year. So what are some possible reasons why the market performs so poorly in the first half of election years? Well, uh, the stock market may initially perform poorly uh, due to economic uncertainty from competing uh, candidates' policies, right? We have a lot of them uh, this year, but it often recovers later in the year as this uncertainty diminishes, and investors uh, typically don't like uncertainty. Uh, so that could be one reason, especially if a clear front runner emerges before or on election day, that uncertainty could decrease, and that usually happens in the later half of the year. But you know, despite that, it's in fact entirely possible that this pattern is simply a coincidence, um, and that there is actually no definite, re definite reason why it's like this. Also, this year we have the Federal Reserve as a factor as well, so that could disrupt the pattern because uh, many investors are actually hoping that the U.S. Fed will cut uh, interest rates as soon as March. And if that happens, the markets uh, could take off. And another factor is that whether we're going to see a, a recession this year, if we do see a downturn, that could also uh, impact the pattern here. So uh, it's just a quick update here. Mm. All right. Thank you, Don. Thanks. Families and businesses continue to feel the impacts of inflation. NTD's Daniel Monahan has some of their stories in a new Labor Department report. Higher energy and housing prices boosted overall inflation in December. Thursday's report from the Labor Department showed that overall prices rose 0.3% from November and 3.4% from 12 months earlier. Housing costs accounted for more than half the increase in prices from November to December. Energy costs and food prices also contributed to the increase. With her four kids and husband, Megan Cherry's family has six mouths to feed. 
Um, so trying to cook big enough meals that everybody gets fed and has stuff for school, for lunches. And um, so that's been probably the biggest challenges. Cherry says approaching the checkout when shopping is a stressful moment. Um, but then I saw the person in front of me who is literally counting pennies. So like I'm over here counting dollars and she's literally like counting out pennies to pay for her groceries. And that was like, like that's the reality. Roberto Torres, owner of Blind Tiger Cafe, came up with a buy-in-bulk solution to tackle inflation. We have now resorted to do an entire buy of our paper cups, lids, plastic, and sleeves for the entire year. Torres says the move cuts their costs by two-thirds. He's been in business for 10 years. The cafe owner says inflation has touched everything within the supply chain that touches a cup of coffee. When we started, a 12-ounce whole milk latte was $3.50. Now it's $5. In a poll conducted in November by the Associated Press NORC Center for Public Affairs Research, about three-quarters of respondents described the economy as poor. Two-thirds said their expenses had risen. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. 150,000 workers have joined picket lines across Northern Ireland. It's part of the biggest strike in the region's recent history. Now public sector, sector, union, public sector unions are threatening to escalate even more because they can't get pay awards offered by the UK government. An estimated 150,000 public sector workers are taking part in walkouts over pay. At the picket outside Stormont Estate, the General Secretary of NIPSA, or Northern Ireland Public Service Alliance, said public service workers haven't had a decent pay rise for more than 10 years. Shows the anger of public service workers who haven't had a decent pay rise in more than 10 years. Public sector workers in Northern Ireland have not received pay rises given to counterparts elsewhere in the UK due to the ongoing political impasse at Stormont. Northern Ireland's Secretary Chris Heaton-Harris has been urged to intervene to release funding to make delayed pay awards in the absence of a devolved government. He has refused, saying the matter is a devolved one. The head of the union said they don't want to be used as a political pawn by the Secretary of State to force the Assembly back. We don't want an assembly back on any terms. We want an assembly with a proper fiscal floor and therefore stability into the future. We don't want to be back here in a year's time fighting not with the Secretary of State, but potentially with, with the assembly. The UK government has offered a financial package worth more than three billion pounds to accompany the return of a devolved executive in Belfast, including money to make the outstanding pay awards. But unions said that's not enough to settle pay awards for now or in the future and threaten to escalate action. This is just the beginning, unfortunately. My members are angry and they're, they're not going to back down. This is not something that is a temporary fight. A teacher said she was joining the picket lines to help achieve pay parity with the rest of the UK. We're losing teachers left, right and centre to Doha, Dubai, everywhere. And then for the education system, it's just crumbling. Our buildings are crumbling. The strike is having a major impact. Schools are closed. Hospitals offer only Christmas Day level services. Public transport is cancelled. 
There has been no functioning power-sharing government in Northern Ireland for almost two years due to a DUP boycott of the institutions in protest at post-Brexit trading arrangements. And for more than half a century, a commuter town in the UK has picked the winner of the country's elections. Voters come in all forms, but this year almost everyone agreed on one thing. Britain's best days are behind it. On the outskirts of London, Dartford has much in common with many other British commuter towns. Uncommonly, it's managed to predict and vote for the winning party in every general election since 1964, the longest consecutive record. If that's a reliable guide, then UK Prime Minister Rishi Sunak has much to worry about ahead of this year's vote, which many now speculate might still be months away. In an era of deep divisions in Britain, Dartford could call it again and send him and his Conservative Party packing. On the town's main street, the diverse but cash-strapped electorate agree on one thing already. Britain's best days are behind it. We're a family of four, two school-aged kids, both working full-time, decent jobs. We're still finding it really hard. Uh, you know, the weekly shop has gone up so much. Even though there's more housing, it's all for people who probably come from boroughs in London and to want to move further out. But there isn't really, there isn't any really that much support for people on social housing and low incomes. Dartford offers important clues to the national picture. Over 100,000 cases. Opinion polls show Sunak's Conservatives trailing opposition leader Keir Starmer and his Labour Party by around 20 percentage points. That's against a backdrop of sluggish economic growth, inflation and a public sector strained after years of spending cuts. British households have suffered the biggest fall in living standards in modern history since the last election in 2019. Another key point of contention this time around is immigration. We're going to sink because we're not that big an island. And long wait times for public services. The tone in Dartford is ominous for the Conservatives, who must win seats like this to have any chance of staying in power. I think I'd rather anybody from, a, from, an, op, uh, from an opposition to be in charge than the Conservatives and Rishi Sunak. If you say the election is going to next week, yes, of course, I'm not going to vote them. Of course not. And uh, maybe if he could take time, like three, four, five, six months, and improve their policies, then maybe I can think again. But yes, not in a week time if election comes. No, no way. Even among traditional Conservative voters in Dartford, there's little enthusiasm for Sunak, who replaced Liz Truss as Prime Minister just over a year ago. The one hope the Conservatives may cling on to here is that some are yet to decide who has their vote. Coming up, capturing a moment in a brushstroke. See the highlights of NTD's sixth international figure painting competition and dive deeper into the meanings behind the works. Now's the chance to buy rare Winston Churchill memorabilia. Find out which items are up for auction in New York. Thank you for staying with us. Let's head to NTD's sixth international figure painting competition. Our very own Kevin Hogan went to the finalists exhibition to get a glimpse of works by more than 50 artists from around the world. We're about to explore some marvelous paintings created with adept skill, imbued with symbolism, ones telling of tragedy and others hope. 
Some of these works offer deeper insights through their depictions of scenes that go beyond this physical world of ours. Here, a pair of Tibetan youth, the painter's careful attention to capture the rosy cheeks. In her hair, a light breeze in which a flame's dancing. Vivian, calm, focused, ready. Regally presented in frontal posture, mountains of her family's home in the background as she gazes to the future, grounded by the elements. To South America, a tale of the Inca. Legend holds the two were created by a deity from the foams of Lake Titicaca to establish their civilization. He wields a staff bearing the holy Chicana symbol. And revival, a girl being purified physically and mentally as she engages in the spiritual discipline Falun Gong, also known as Falun Dafa, a group facing tragedy, over 20 years persecution in China by the ruling Chinese Communist Party, or CCP. Here, police manipulate adherence child, a tear rolling down her cheek, to cause them to give up their faith, bound and scarred with golden light at their crowns. Hong Kongers stand up for their freedom in the face of a draconian national security law imposed by the CCP, waving banners reading, Free Hong Kong, and in Chinese, Heaven will destroy the CCP. The right panel of the triptych shows vast arrays of divine beings, Buddhas. Below fall corrupted gods and evil spirits heading for the abyss of the underworld. A member of the arts club shares his impression of the collection. Well, I love realist art, and you know, that's what I came here for, and I wasn't disappointed. Oh, the detail's incredible. Um, on just about all of them. I mean, that's, that's I think, great art. It has a lot of detail. And, and because they're of people, there's a lot of emotion that gets captured by that. The competition seeks to use realist oil painting to foster traditional values and positive ideals, such as righteousness, beauty, and compassion. A chance to buy a piece of history. A remarkable collection of Winston Churchill memorabilia is up for auction in New York. The highlights we have here at the show, which are this magnificent painting behind me. Uh, this painting was actually commissioned by Clementine Churchill in 1943, so during the war, and it was done, they made a, they made a print of it to sell, it was to raise money for the Russian Red Cross. The items are offered by London-based rare bookshop Peter Harrington. They come from the personal collection of Steve Forbes, chairman and editor-in-chief of Forbes magazine. The collection includes an original oil painting by Churchill and 25 rare books inscribed by the British leader. There's also Churchill's personal desk from his home at Hyde Park Gate. I'm resting against on here is actually Winston Churchill's original desk that he was given by Clementine in 1946. So after he became Prime Minister, Clementine bought him this desk for him to work at at home. And it was with him for the rest of his life, and it was auctioned off upon his death. This is regarded as one of the finest private collections of Churchill-related items. The items will be sold individually. They are currently showcased at the Winter Show in New York City. And next up, if you have any news tips or feedback for the show, please feel free to email us at news.today at ntd.com.
Welcome to NTD News Today. Here are today's top stories. Hunter Biden's laptop is real. The DOJ is now confirming that the device did indeed belong to the president's son. That seems to contradict the Biden's own claims. We have the latest on the laptop saga. Former President Trump doubling down on his presidential immunity claim in his legal battles. Find out how Trump compared his situation to actions by former President Obama. An Arctic blast is still impacting states across the nation. We'll bring you how Americans in different parts of the country are dealing with the freezing temperatures. The week started with farmers, today it's truckers. Protests continue in Germany as Olaf Scholz's government feels the heat. Hear the demonstrators' concerns. And in college football, a 25-year-old tight end is approved for his ninth season of play next year in Miami. NTD's Dave Martin joins us to explain. The winners are out for the NTD International Figure Painting Competition. We have the latest from the awards ceremony in New York City. This is NTD News Today, live from our NTD Global Headquarters. Here are Stephania Cox and Chris Beers. We begin with the infamous Hunter Biden laptop. Federal prosecutors are now confirming the laptop did indeed belong to the president's son. That's after he denied the claim during the scandal. Prosecutors say the contents of the laptop largely matches content from Hunter Biden's Apple iCloud account. Back in 2019, the IRS and the FBI obtained a search warrant for Biden's Apple iCloud content while investigating alleged tax violations. In response to the warrant, Apple produced backups of data from his, electronic, from his various electronic devices. Federal prosecutors investigating Biden's gun charge now say they can confirm the laptop's authenticity after comparing it to the iCloud content. And in related news, the president's son is set to appear before the House Judiciary Committee for a deposition. That's to testify in the House impeachment inquiry into President Biden. Chairman Jim Jordan said the date for the deposition is set for February 28th. Over to former President Trump's legal battles, Trump suggested that not granting him presidential immunity could set a complicated precedent. Many of the cases against him revolve around things that happened during his presidency. Trump was on Fox News comparing his situation to other presidents. Like Obama dropped missiles and they ended up hitting a kindergarten or a school or the apartment house. A lot of people were killed. Well, if that's the case, he's going to end up being indicted when he leaves office. He meant well. The missile went in the wrong direction. A New York Times report from 2019 said the Obama administration killed between 60 and 110 civilians in over 500 airstrikes. Trump also said President Biden could be prosecuted in the future if presidential immunity doesn't apply. He says that's because of Biden's handling of the Afghanistan withdrawal and America's southern border, both of which led to the deaths of civilians. Trump is currently awaiting verdicts in federal cases in Atlanta and D.C., both are alleging election interference at the end of Trump's presidency. And in related news, Trump will appear on the Washington state primary ballot. A judge on Thursday rejected the latest effort to disqualify the former president. As in other states, the voters who filed the, election, the challenge in Washington cited the 14th Amendment's insurrection clause. 
The Trump campaign praised the judge's decision to dismiss the case. They alleged the Democratic Party is orchestrating these cases. Washington officials have a January 27th deadline to print ballots. The state's primary will be held on March 12th. Nevada's Republican governor endorsed former President Trump yesterday. It's a key swing state that Trump is looking to win easily in a caucus next month. Governor Joe Lombardo told the Nevada Independent he believes the economy and foreign affairs were more stable under Trump. He also said, for all practical purposes, the race is over. Trump endorsed Lombardo during a 2022 run for governor. Nevada has two nominating contests next month, a primary the state is required to run because of a 2021 law, and a caucus the Nevada state GOP is holding two days later. The Nevada GOP ultimately assigned the, delegation, the delegates that matter to win the national domination. They said they will only give the winner of the caucus the delegates. They said any candidates signing up for the primary would be barred from the caucus. Trump and Governor Ron DeSantis chose the caucus. Nikki Haley opted for the primary. And around 180 congressional Republicans are urging the Supreme Court to keep Trump on Colorado's ballot. Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell, Senator Ted Cruz, and House Majority Leader Steve Scalise were among those who signed an amicus brief submitted yesterday. They also argue that a state court has no right to circumvent Congress. That's because Congress is able to interject on Section 3 with a two-thirds vote up to the time a candidate holds office. The brief also states no insurrection occurred. It references Trump's statements asking demonstrators to act, quote, peacefully and patriotically. And former President Trump's legal cases. They are becoming a topic of discussion for other presidential candidates as well. During a CNN town hall in New Hampshire, the moderator asked Nikki Haley if she would, as president, preemptively pardon Trump. No, I think everything needs to play out. I think it's important that that happens. And I honestly think President Trump would want that to happen. If he wants to defend himself and prove that he has been treated, you know, the wrong way or whether it's political, I think he would want to fight for that. You know, you only want to talk about a pardon after someone has been convicted. So I would assume that we'd let that play out. And I would think he would want that to play out. The moderator noted President Ford preemptively pardoned his predecessor, Richard Nixon. Nixon was not charged with a crime, but resigned from office due to the Watergate scandal. Haley, meanwhile, reiterated her pledge to pardon Trump should he be convicted. She said a pardon is only for people who are already found guilty. Haley also said that having an 80-year-old president sitting in jail is going to further divide the country. She said pardoning him would be her healing. Of the country. Haley added, quote, I am determined to make sure all of this division, all of this chaos goes away. No government shutdown for now. The House approved and sent a short-term funding bill to President Biden's desk late yesterday. That's one day before a partial shutdown deadline. For analysis of the path to funding the government this year, we're joined by Ryan Walker, Executive Vice President of Heritage, Heritage Action. Thank you for your time, Ryan. Why is the House passing a short-term bill and not the full thing in the first place? Refresh our memories here. Yeah, it's an important question. The reason that they had to pass another short-term extension is because Democrats and Republicans agreed two weeks ago now to a top-line spending number. And that meant, effectively, that they had to introduce new pieces of legislation to fund the federal government. That would take too long to get done in 10 days so they needed to pass a CR to extend it for another 40. 
All right, and funding the government has been a contentious issue in the past several months. What did it take to get lawmakers to agree on this bill? Well, I think that there is uh, some disagreement, actually. I know that it passed and it had overwhelming numbers, but you saw 108 Republicans vote no on the CR in the House of Representatives. And I think that speaks to a larger issue that many Republicans are confronting, that spending is too high, deficit spending is too high, and our debt is growing day by day. We're spending, uh, we're adding a trillion dollars every three months to our national debt. Right, and, and all these Democrats signing onto this bill is pretty contentious as well. Um, you know, he, House Speaker Mike Johnson relied heavily on Democrats to get it passed, as we're talking about. What does that mean for Johnson's, uh, the future of Johnson's speakership? Well, I think that there are, you know, he has 40 days now to put together a plan to cut spending and secure the border. Those are two asks from conservative Republicans in the House. And he has a very narrow majority to be able to get that done. And so what we saw this week, the CR went under what's called the suspension calendar to avoid some of those internal dynamics. And Speaker Johnson's going to have to navigate over the next 40 days how he deals with the overall spending question. And I think everybody in the Republican conference in the House is looking to him for how he's going to act. And enumerate some of the questions surrounding this bill. You know, there's, there's uh, Ukraine, Israel, Yes, there's, a, the, there's another conversation that is also going on at the same time. The president has sent a supplemental funding request to the Congress, and the Senate is trying to put together an agreement that would put together Ukraine aid with Israel aid, as well as Taiwan, uh, and border security measures. They have been negotiating with uh, Republicans and Democrats in the Senate now for the better part of a month uh, to put together what they would both agree on as it relates to border security. However, the House of Representatives has passed H.R. 2. H.R. 2 is a robust border security bill uh, that has a, a number of provisions that the Republican conference believes must be included in any border security agreement. And there is an assumption in the House of Representatives that whatever the Senate is putting together won't match up to H.R. 2. And so I think that there is an open question of whether the supplemental can survive both chambers of Cong Congress over the next couple of weeks. Right, and this bill kicks the can on funding the government uh, to two separate deadlines on March 1st and March 8th. What obstacles will Congress have to face to uh, avoid a shutdown then? Well, they, it, you've articulated it well. They have two deadlines that they are facing. The March 1st deadline, which contains four different appropriation bills, and a subsequent deadline on March 8th, which contains the remaining eight appropriation bills. There are 12 that must pass Congress every year. And so I think there are conservatives in the House of Representatives and some in the Senate who are calling for reduced spending. And they aren't going to vote for pieces of legislation that go above and beyond the spending that we saw in 2023. So those are some of the initial barriers. And then there is this open conversation of the crisis on the southern border and dealing with the millions of migrants who have illegally crossed into the United States since Biden uh, came into power. And so Mike Johnson, Speaker Johnson, and, and Republicans and Democrats on the Senate side are going to have to confront these two questions should they be successful in, in funding the government for the remainder of the year. All right, Ryan Walker, Executive Vice President of Heritage, Heritage Action. Thank you so much. 
And with the New Hampshire primary just around the corner, the tech used for voting is getting a closer look. Many voters will cast ballots on scanners at least 15 years old. Security risk is not the issue, however. Election experts say the problem is the age of the ballot, vote ballot tabulators, and they are used across half of the state's towns and cities. With a dwindling supply of replacement parts, breakdowns would create headaches for election officials during Tuesday's first-in-the-nation primary. That could force them to count ballots by hand, which some say would be a, some uh, argue that would be a good thing. And that may also, though, lead to delays in reporting results. President Biden is downplaying Trump's win in Iowa for a closer look at what he said and if he's got a point or not. I spoke with political commentator and actor Jeff Ahern. Jeff Ahern, thank you so much for joining us. President Biden said Thursday that Trump's 51-point victory in Iowa doesn't mean anything. Trump's lead this year was more than two times his lead in Iowa in 2016. What can we draw from Trump's lead in Iowa this time around and what happened in 2016? Uh, well, I feel like there's more support than ever for Trump uh, at, at this point in the, in the election cycle. At the beginning, you know, back in the day in 2016, you know, Trump was almost a novelty candidate. Oh, isn't that funny? He's, he thinks he's going to be, uh, you know, the president or even, even be the nominee. And then later on, he, he wound up being just that. And for Biden not being concerned about his his 51 percent, well, that's because Biden is quite obviously using the apparatus at his disposal, uh, trying to ensure that that doesn't happen, uh, not via vis-a-vis -vis the uh, popular vote, but rather, uh, you know, through uh, litigation here, litigation there, and anything else he can trump up, if you will. <laughs> sure, <laughs> trump up, yeah. Uh, so now the co-founder of Home Depot said that he would give uh, Governor Nikki Haley's campaign a nice sum of money, quote unquote, depending mm -hmm. on uh, how she does in New Hampshire on Tuesday. Yeah. How, how many donors are thinking the way this guy is thinking, waiting until Tuesday to decide where to put their money? Oh, I think a, a lot are, because right now it's, it's still very close. Uh, her and DeSantis are extremely tight um back and forth and you want to you want to back the winner so you kind of want to see where it's going to land like so okay we had a, a first run uh and we, we saw where that was but it's still very tight will, th will there be a, a bigger spacing now between the two uh potential nominees uh so that's just that's just being smart and again if it's real tight they may wait another week you know they kind of want to see where it's going to land before they start uh even people with lots of money kind of want to be careful where they put it um so it, it makes sense that, that he's waiting uh, i think he'll have a better uh, idea uh, and then, uh, you know, of course, he probably throws money to Trump's way on the side also. Got <laughs> 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 to cover all your bases. Maybe you split it up, give them to all three. Here, you get a little, you get a little, you get a little. Help me sure. out when I need it. Yeah, exactly. Maybe I can get a little. Um, <laughs> what, could more, what could more money do for the trajectory of Haley's campaign? Well, Haley's got a lot of money in her uh, campaign already, um, but uh, I, obviously it helps. You need money to win. Uh, you need money for the advertising. You need money to reach uh, voters. You need money to run uh, uh, campaign ads that uh, showcase your talents and your, uh, your flaws of your opponents. So obviously, the more money, the better. Uh, and Haley is a great speaker. I like Haley. I like, I like all three candidates. I like Trump. I like Haley. I like DeSantis. Um, I saw her speak at the Reagan Library. And when she's actually speaking um, to people, you know, she's, she's very... Uh, She's articulate and she's passionate, and I feel like all of them uh, have pros and cons. I'd be happy with 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 any of them, but obviously right now I, I think uh, Trump would be uh, my my go-to. But again, you don't know if he's going to uh, win because of all the things going on. He's the lead; he should be the nominee, hands down, no question. 
But will he even get that far based on all the litigation against him and, and things going on in the flat-out shenanigans, trying to pull him off the ballot? That's right. And he was the favorite in the beginning of 2020. But a lot happened between mm -hmm. then and uh, November of 2020. Well, um, it was, it was a, yeah. It was a concerted effort to, to bring him down, and it succeeded. <laughs> it definitely did. Um, the week, Governor, uh, th this week, Governor Ron DeSantis expressed regret about not having put um, more media, done more media appearances at the start of his campaign. Um, mm. he, said, he said, quote, I should have just been blanketing. I should have gone um, on all the corporate shows. What's behind his concern? Well, I mean, he was, he's playing it down like he wasn't doing it, but he was. I mean, I saw him at the Reagan Library. He was out doing a, a publicity campaign for his book, which was basically also a publicity campaign for his candidacy. Um, so maybe he could have done more. You know, hindsight's 2020. Oh, I should have done this show. I should have done that show. Uh, it's, it's kind of making some excuses, it feels like to me. Jeff Ahern, thank you so much. My pleasure. Have a great day. You too. And the first in the nation primary in New Hampshire is coming up next week. Make sure you don't miss our special coverage. Join NTD's Steve Lance and Tiffany Meyer for another exciting election night on The Nation Decides 2024. Exclusive on the ground access and special guests. Watch the action live on Tuesday, January 23rd at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. Representative Dean Phillips' long shot bid to win the White House gets a slight boost. The Democrat from Minnesota is being endorsed by 2020 presidential candidate Andrew Yang. He made it official during an event in New Hampshire yesterday. In this time of need, only one person decided to place his country above his professional aspirations, put his conviction above the chattering class. And that is the man I am proud to endorse tonight as the next president of the United States, three-term congressman from Minnesota, Dean Phillips. Phillips has one advantage over President Biden. He's on the New Hampshire primary ballot. The state's Democratic primary is Tuesday, but the National Party says it won't recognize the results because it no longer has New Hampshire first on the nominating calendar. Coming up next, some Teslas aren't charging and even gas-powered SUVs are stuck in the snow. We look at the impact this week's Arctic blast has had in states across the U.S. And an American spacecraft reportedly going up in flames over the Pacific. We bring you an update on the failed moon mission. More in just a moment here on NTD News Today. Welcome back. Arctic cold weather is impacting states across the nation. Let's take a look at how Americans in different parts of the country are dealing with the freezing temperatures. In Washington state, gusty winds of up to 100 miles per hour went through the ski resort of White Pass on Wednesday. Footage shows snow falling from steep slopes this week. The White Pass crew was later able to get the highway back open. In Nebraska, a severe winter storm dumped thick snow over the streets yesterday. Some streets were seen entirely covered as snow continued to fall and fierce winds were blowing. 
The National Weather Service strongly advised drivers in eastern Nebraska to avoid the roads until late Thursday evening. That's as both visibility and road conditions were not anticipated to improve. Temperatures are expected to ease the next week, according to forecasts. In Chicago, Tesla drivers were facing challenges. That's as freezing temperatures rendered many charging stations inoperable. Numerous Tesla owners found themselves stranded with dead batteries on Monday due to a shortage of functional chargers. Some endured hours-long waits in the bitter cold. And lastly, in Tennessee, even traditional gas-powered cars needed help. Two horses owned by local Amish people pulled a stranded truck back onto the road on Monday. An eyewitness said several trucks and cars passed by, not stopping to help. She added that her Amish neighbor rescued the driver without leaving the pasture. Temperatures in Nashville are also expected to rise again early next week. And a plane skidded off the runway at the International Airport in Rochester, New York yesterday. Airport officials said 50 passengers and three crew members were on board when the aircraft slid onto the grass. An American Airlines spokesman told CBS the jet exited the taxiway due to snowy airfield conditions. The jet left Philadelphia and landed in Rochester at around 4 p.m. local time when the slide, the slide occurred. Passengers were transferred by bus to the terminal. No injuries were reported. Nearly 50 people across the country have died from the Arctic cold snap, with 95 million Americans under, under winter weather warnings. In the last seven days since January 12th, local and state officials reported that 47 people have died due to cold-related conditions. Most of these occurred in Tennessee, Oregon, and Illinois. House lawmakers are looking to hear directly from Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin about why he didn't send a notification of his recent hospitalization. The House Armed Services Committee has asked Austin to testify in person before the panel on February 14th. The chair of the panel, Mike Rogers, wrote in a letter, quote, Congress must understand what happened and who made decisions to prevent the disclosure of the whereabouts of a cabinet secretary, unquote. Austin and the Pentagon have been under intense scrutiny after a failure to quickly notify the White House or Congress that the secretary was hospitalized on New Year's Day. Austin was admitted to Walter Reed Medical Military Medical Center following complications from a prostate cancer procedure in December. And an American spacecraft has reportedly ended its journey in flames over the Pacific. That's after failing its mission, trying to land on the moon. A company called Astrobotic launched the spacecraft, nicknamed Peregrine, earlier this month. The company released this video today, saying it was captured by the spacecraft. A day after the launch, Astrobotic announced Peregrine would fail to make a soft landing on the moon that was due to a propellant leak, leak in the first few hours of the journey in space. The BBC now reports that the company decided to destroy the spacecraft while it was above the Pacific Ocean. And Japan's lunar lander, the moon sniper, has touched down on the moon, making Japan the third country this century to do so. But the condition of the spacecraft is still unknown. The unmanned spacecraft known as the Smart Lander for investigating moon carries precision technology for a precise landing on a 100-meter landing site. The lander's goal is to study rocks in the Sea of Nectar, which could provide insights into the moon's origin. 
The JAXA broadcast said they are still checking on the status of the lander and would provide further updates. This achievement comes amid a new lunar, lunar space race among various countries to explore the moon and unlock its resources for future space exploration. A flight attendant is charged with child pornography for allegedly filming children using the bathroom. The U.S. Attorney's Office in Massachusetts identified him as Estes Carter Thompson III. It alleges that last year he used stickers to tape his phone to an open toilet lid right before a 14-year-old girl entered. But she caught on. But she caught on took a picture of him of his concealed phone and told her parents. Authorities say they found four videos of kids using the bathroom on Thompson's iCloud account. American Airlines says it immediately removed Thompson from service when it learned of the incident. An airplane was seen shooting out flames and sparks shortly after taking off. The mid-air accident was caught on camera. Take a look. Late yesterday, a woman out for a walk said she saw the plane and started recording. Turns out it was an Atlas Air cargo ship that had an engine problem. According to flight data, the plane in the air was in the air for only 14 minutes, with the issues starting about three minutes into the flight. Atlas says the plane was able to return to Miami International Airport and safely land. There are no reports of injuries. Atlas Air says it will inspect the plane to figure out what caused the issue. And more layoffs are coming to Google in the coming months as the tech giant adapts to artificial intelligence and other changing industry trends. Job cuts at Google have already affected hundreds of employees in the past week alone. The CEO said the scale of the cuts won't be the same as last year's layoffs that trimmed Google's wor workforce by 12,000 employees. Some parts of the company won't be hit by this year's changes. And retailer Macy's is also downsizing. The company will be laying off thousands of workers while also closing five stores. Roughly 2,300 employees will be let go. That's about 3.5% of the department store chain's workforce. A Macy's spokesperson says the layoff will allow them to become a more streamlined company. Macy's first opened in 1858 and there are now about 500 of the namesake stores. The company also owns the Bloomingdale's chain. And another round of layoffs comes from online home furnishings retailer Wayfair. The company is cutting 13% of its workforce, or about 1,600 employees. Wayfair has struggled to rebound following its success amid pandemic lockdowns when homebound shoppers ordered items like furniture and desks online. The company's CEO said today that it hired too many people during that time. Nearly 20% of the layoffs will be on the corporate team. The affected workers will be offered severance packages. The job cuts will reportedly save Wayfair an estimated $280 million a year. The Boston-based company had about 14,000 employees as of 2023. Over 580,000 beds are being recalled due to the risk of breaking or collapsing. Dozens of injuries have been reported. The beds were made by the Indiana-based company Home Design. They were sold by retailers like Walmart and Wayfair between July 2018 and November 2023. Consumers are urged to stop using these beds immediately and contact the company for free replacement slots and slide, side rails. In another product recall, some baby spinach and assorted salad varieties sold by Bright Farms 
could become contaminated with listeria. The Food and Drug Administration says affected products were sold primarily in the northeastern U.S., but also in Virginia and West Virginia. The bacteria was identified during routine testing. No cases of listeria have been linked to the products to date. Most people affected by listeria never report it because it typically resolves in one or two days. But it can also cause miscarriages and more severe infection in immunocompromised people. And a food safety warning, another one. Raw oysters may have made hundreds of people sick in Southern California. Health officials in Los Angeles and San Diego counties say raw oysters are being linked to about 200 cases of gastrointestinal illness. Officials say the oysters were imported from Mexico and served at restaurants across the region since mid-December. The FDA advised restaurants, retailers, and consumers in California not to serve, sell, or eat certain imported oysters due to potential norovirus contamination. You can get more information at FDA.gov. Coming up, Taiwan's top envoy to the U.S. opens up about bilateral relations. Find out what he has to say about relations with the U.S. and the recent election in Taiwan. The U.S. is eyeing shipyards in Japan. Find out what the U.S. ambassador to Japan wants to use them for and why. We'll have the details soon when we return. Taiwan's new envoy to the U.S. is promising to forge stronger ties with the United States. This comes just days after the island elected a new president who is pro-America and critical of the Chinese communist regime. I think under uh, our new president's uh, administration uh, in May, you know, 20th of this year, uh, the U.S. policy towards Taiwan will continue to be the same, to continue strengthening uh, our, our existing relations and also based on common values you know, for freedom and democracy. Uh, that policy uh, will not change. Alexander Tareyu is Taiwan's de facto ambassador to the U.S. He arrived in Washington, D.C. in December. You said U.S. relations with, with Taiwan in the last few years have been rock solid and added that's in multiple fields, including economic, security, and cultural. Taiwan is also trying to reach a trade agreement with the U.S. called the 21st Century Trade Initiative. We have been in, we've been going through talks of the 21st Century uh, Trade Initiative, and we've already uh, reached the first stage in which U.S. Congress has already passed the, that first stage and signed, signed by President Biden, and we're in the second stage of the dialogue or, or for, for the, the 21st Century uh, Trade Initiative. The envoy said President-elect Lai Ching-te will follow similar government policies of his predecessor, President Tsai Ing-wen. You commented that the U.S. has approved a lot of security assistance to Taiwan, and he expects them to continue under Taiwan's new administration. The envoy also spoke about Taiwan's recent election. He said election results show that the people of Taiwan want to keep the status quo with China. And Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky didn't have a chance to meet the Chinese premier during the World Economic Forum earlier this week. It's reportedly because Russia urged Beijing to cease diplomatic encounters with Kyiv. China reportedly declined to have a face-to-face -face meeting with Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky during the World Economic Forum in Davos. 
According to Politico, China's decision seemed intentional, not because of a tight schedule. One senior U.S. official reportedly said China rejected Ukraine's request for a meeting. Another senior U.S. official reportedly said Beijing did so after Russia urged it to cease diplomatic encounters with Kiev. A Ukrainian official said they didn't have such a meeting on their schedule and they didn't request one. Ukrainian leaders made no secret of wanting to meet with Chinese officials as they hoped China could join peace talks. But an analysis said the Snowbat Davos is the latest sign that China has no intention of pushing an end to the war in Ukraine. China has instead provided Russia with materials for its military at the time when Western countries impose sanctions on Moscow. Without a Chinese meeting on his schedule, Zelensky spent time meeting key partners and business leaders, including US Secretary of State Antony Blinken, National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan and European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen. And in more China news, over $30 million in taxpayer funding funneled to a Chinese AI expert. How was the grant approved while he took up jobs tied to the Chinese military? Lawmakers are demanding answers. That and more tonight at 9.30 p.m. Eastern, only on NTD's China in Focus with Tiffany Meyer. Vehicles blocked roads for the second time in this week in Berlin. Truck drivers held a protest in the German capital today. The week began and ended with a long line of vehicles on the road in front of the landmark Brandenburg Gate. Drivers were honking their horns in protest. Farmers first on Monday and truckers on Friday. The demonstrations underline deep frustration in Germany with Chancellor Olaf Scholz's government. Farmers are angry over losing tax benefits on diesel fuel as part of a climate initiative. The truckers, meanwhile, are fired up over a new road tax based on CO2 emissions. It is a total mistake to ban the combustion engine. This will only lead to combustion engines no longer being produced in Germany in the next few years. But in China, we will not be happy with electric trucks for long distances. Critics of the tax argue the cost will fall on consumers. More than 500 trucks, along with several dozens of tractors, joined in on Friday. Staying in the Asia-Pacific, the U.S. is trying to make better use of Japan's resources to bolster its military capabilities. The U.S. and Japan will look at the viability of using Japanese shipyards to overhaul U.S. Navy warships. U.S. Ambassador to Japan, Rahm Emanuel, announced his intention at the U.S. Naval Base in Japan. He said repairing ship, ships in Japan rather than in the U.S. would boost military deterrence in the region by keeping military assets in place. If we ever have a hot situation, which I hope never happens as a father of a Navy officer and as an American, you don't want to start training and working together in that type of tense situation. You want to do it beforehand. That's why we train together, so therefore there why we should repair and maintain together. And keeping ships in theater is part of our deterrence. The ambassador said the plan could allow the U.S. to have better military deterrence against communist China. He noted that China watches which ships are coming in and out and evaluates U.S. deterrence accordingly. Japan hosts the biggest overseas concentration of U.S. military power, including the only forward-developed, forward-deployed carrier strike group. Most of the U.S. 7th Fleet is based in Japan. It commands up to 70 ships and submarines. 
Two 16-year-old North Korean high school students were reportedly sentenced to 12 years of hard labor. This for watching and distributing South Korean films and dramas. The rare footage was obtained by a South Korean think tank. In the video, two students can be seen standing in a show trial in front of hundreds of their peers, though NTD couldn't independently verify this footage. The think tank says the video was created for internal educational purposes. It's said to be for promoting North Korea's reactionary ideology and culture re rejection law established in 2020. Apart from films, the video also criticizes North Korean female residents for adopting foreign clothing styles. The style fads mentioned include dyed hair, shorts, and tight pants. The president of the think tank commented, Handing out a heavy sentence to the students shows that North Korean authorities are trying to present this to all North Korean residents as an alarm and warning. It also shows how South Korean culture and lifestyle is quite widespread all over North Korean society. Coming up in college football, a player turns a four-year scholarship into a nine-season odyssey. NTD's Dave Martin joins us to explain the unusual circumstances. And the winners are out for the NTD International Figure Painting Competition. We have the latest from the award ceremony in New York City. More shortly here on NTD News Today. And now for your sports news. We're joined by NTD's Dave Martin. Dave, another big playoff weekend in the NFL with four games on between Saturday and Sunday. Now, is there a particular matchup you're most looking forward to this weekend? Yeah, Kansas City-Buffalo. Now, I think most people are looking forward to this game because it's become an ongoing rivalry, really. Plus, you have the defending Super Bowl champions, Chiefs, on the road in a very difficult environment. Now, this will be the third time in the last four years these two have met in the postseason. The last time was an instant classic. Four lead changes in the final two minutes including two in the last 15 seconds. I mean, that's unheard of. Now, the Chiefs eventually won the game in overtime. That game is really on a short list of greatest playoff games ever. I don't think we're going to get a repeat, but this will be the first time they meet in Buffalo. Amazingly, this will also be Patrick Mahomes' first ever uh, playoff road game, and he's already won like two Super Bowls already. Now, it's an even matchup. Both teams have great quarterbacks. I think the Chiefs have a better defense. Buffalo prize better playmakers on offense. I'm picking Buffalo to win a close one uh, over the Chiefs. All right. Now, Dave, in college football news, Miami tight end Cam McCormick announced he's coming back for a ninth season next year. Now, how is this even possible? You know, that, that was exactly my first question when I read this. You know, he was a freshman all the way back in 2016 with Oregon. That was in the same class as current L.A. Chargers quarterback Justin Herbert, who's already played four years in the NFL, let alone four in college. Now, anyway, McCormick redshirted that first year, so that doesn't count. He then played 13 games as a redshirt freshman the following year, only to miss most of the next three seasons with injuries. Got medical redshirts for all of them. Plus, 2020, everyone got an extra year because of the shortened COVID season. He's finally been able to play the last two years, one with Oregon, and then he transferred to Miami. This, I would think, will finally be his last season. He'll turn 26 next year, so quite a fun run he's had. And looking at tennis, 10-time Australian Open winner Novak Djokovic won his third round match today. Uh, that extends his win streak to 31 matches. How does his dominance there compare to Rafael Nadal's in the French Open? Well, you know what? I don't think anyone, anything tops Nadal's dominance at the French Open. 112 wins against just three losses. 
14 overall titles in 17 tries there. You know, I don't think anything in sports that matches that kind of prolonged dominance. This is over a two-decade span. Those 14 titles alone, if he never played the other three majors, that would still time with Pete Sampras for the third most major titles of all time, behind Djokovic and Roger Federer. I mean, that is absurd. Now that said, I mean, Djokovic definitely owns the Australian Open. His 10 titles there are more than anyone else. His overall record there, I think, is 92-8, and eight, and that's after he lost his first two matches, you know, way back when he was probably a teenager. So I think we're really witnessing history with his run here right now. All right, great. Thanks so much, Dave. Thank you, guys. Thanks, Dave. And next up, NTD wrapped up its sixth international figure painting competition with an awards ceremony at the Samal Gandhi Club in New York City. Well, the paintings have been on display. Take a look. Merciful and A total of 60 entries from 20 countries around the world were selected for the final exhibition. After a review from judges, there was no gold award given out this year, but three silver awards and five bronze awards were handed out. The triptych, Buddha's Grace, created by three artists from Japan and Taiwan, won the highest prize of the competition, the silver award. The work demonstrated themes of contemporary mythological scenes. The biggest challenge is that these paintings are very large, and then there are also many characters. At the beginning of the design process, in order to put all three paintings together as one, we had to put a lot of effort into the planning. Each of us probably has at least 20 to 30 sketches for each of our works. This piece, painted by Xing Jiang from Taiwan, titled Choosing Conscience Amid Political Unrest, won the Profound Humanities Award. Six artists also took home the Outstanding Technique Award two artists with the Outstanding Youth Awards, as well as 35 honorable mentions. As one of the top figure painting competitions in the world, the traditional artwork promotes the concepts of innocence, purity, and beauty. This competition is really unique in that it places an emphasis on really letting classical aesthetics and ideals of truth and beauty. The judges encourage contestants to continue to sharpen their skills while staying true to ideas and themes that would promote the return of tradition and inspire the minds of future generations. And I'm really grateful that there's a wonderful competition that NTD puts on that we can all get together and, and view and, and enjoy one another's work and always worth it to come and it's fantastic. An album of this year's paintings will be released after the exhibit is over. The more than 60 finalist painting will be on display at the Salma Gundi Club in Manhattan, open to the public free of charge until 6 p.m. today. And in health news, the right kind of music has been proven to alleviate stress. Scientists have even used it to heal a young girl's brain. Here's NTD's Gina Marie with Strong Mind and Body. Beautiful music can move an audience to tears while a high-pitched sound can shatter glass. The vibrations and frequencies of sound have a powerful effect on the mind and body. Ancients used music as a fertility treatment and to target ailments in specific organs. Scientists have used music to heal a young girl's brain, help Alzheimer's patients, aid recovery from surgery and raise people's IQs. William Ford Thompson is an associate professor of neurology at Harvard University. In an article published by Scientific American, the professor talked about an 11-year-old girl who suffered from a stroke. It resulted in permanent brain damage. The girl went through 15 weeks of melodic intonation therapy. By the end of the 15-week treatment period, she could speak more fluently. 
Her healing through singing is becoming more and more common. There are choirs around the world where members are stroke survivors. They are communicating again through music. Music has been used to improve health across many different cultures throughout history. There are frescoes in Egypt depicting the use of music to improve fertility in women. Shamans in the highland tropical forests of Peru use chanting as their primary tool for healing. A research article on music and Chinese medicine stated that music used in therapy has been effective. Harvard medical specialists have deemed music beneficial in one way or another. While music cannot cure Alzheimer's, it can alleviate confusion and anxiety in patients. Music is also used at certain medical centers. It can help with surgery preparation, procedure, and recovery. A clinical nurse at Mayo Clinic encourages patients to listen to music before, during, and after surgery. Mozart's music is famously said to make babies smarter, but does it really? The University of California asked three groups of college students to take an IQ test. They listened to 10 minutes of either Mozart or a relaxing tape or silence. The groups that listened to Mozart consistently did better than other groups. So next time you are feeling a little uneasy, try some classical or calm music as a remedy. And the country of Georgia's grape harvest may be over, but one vineyard owner's work for the year is far from finished. At his winery in the country's east, leftover grape juice from the year's harvest is used to produce a national delicacy. NTD's Andrew Thomas has more. Throughout Georgia, sticks of Cherkella hang from market stalls. George Piradashvili says his countrymen often stock up on the snack of hard-boiled grape juice and walnuts. The energy snack is great for hunting or traveling. He compares it to Snickers. There is a nuts or uh, walnuts or you can use the Greek nuts uh, and the strip. Sleep you don't have to eat. It's just to holding. Chewy Cherkella sticks are one way to sweeten an otherwise heavy diet. The grape juice must be stirred to prevent it from setting too soon. The concoction boils and thickens in large vats for hours on end. It's a physically demanding task. After that you have to dry it and uh, after it's drying you can keep it quite a long time, maybe also the two or three years in a dry place with some clothes outside. For tourists, the brownish-purple candy can take some getting used to. So yeah, I, I like Trujella when I tried for the first time. It was, uh, it was interesting. Uh, actually, in the beginning, I, I didn't like it very much because it was, it was very strange to me. But then I tried it more and more, and, and it has a yeah, really good taste. Today is my first time I tried Trujella. This is Belamuche. Belamuche. Uh-huh. It's good. I don't love it. I'm going to, to be sincere. But it's good. But George's children love the sweets. Itself is a very, very tasty, and uh, also kids like it very much. And uh, also the process of to to make the churchgala is uh, very funny, because many people also are there, tourists also are coming here. Not only tourists, also the member of the, our families they are coming to to uh, to have this experience. The candy costs less than a dollar a stick in the capital, Tbilisi. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. And that's all for today's news. Thank you for tuning in. Feel free to reach out to us with news tips or feedback at news.today at ntd.com. We'll be back with more stories on Monday.